There is an older woman that I know who I think is coming to the end of her life. Uh, She's struggling with her health and all of those aches and pains that come along with aging, the limitations of modern medicine, and with some regret, I think, that she experiences from her past. And one of the ways that she deals with all of these unpleasant things is by leaning on a relationship with what she would say is her guardian angel. Uh, She prays often to this angel, wishing it good morning before she eats breakfast and good night after she brushes her teeth and, and lays down to bed. And she considers this angel to be a close companion to her throughout the day, who she believes is always watching over her to encourage her and help her. She feels that this angel has got her back in life, and she loves this angel. In fact, when she speaks of it, her eyes well up with tears. But she wants nothing to do with Jesus. She's not interested in him at all. In fact, uh, she bristles up a little bit, even at the mention of his name. Now, this kind of thinking in regard to angels is not new. It's been around for a long time. But this passage shows us that an overemphasis on angels doesn't really make much sense. It shows us instead that Jesus, as the unique Son of God, is infinitely better and stronger and fitter than any created angel, even the greatest of angels, could ever be at the height of their glory on their very best day. Jesus is supreme, the author of this passage cries out, and he says, let me prove it to you. And that's what I want to try to do this morning. I want to try to prove that to you using the words of the author of Hebrews. Now, to make his point, the author draws heavily on the Old Testament. In fact, he uses seven quotations, mostly from the psalm, to show us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, plays second fiddle to no one, including angelic beings. And we are given here five reasons that this is so, and I want to look at these five reasons with you today. The author tells us that Jesus is greater than the angels because, first of all, he's the Son of God. And second of all, because the angels worship him, not the other way around. Thirdly, he says, because he is in charge of everything. Fourthly, Jesus is better than the angels because he alone is eternal And finally, the author says, he's better than the angels because he wins it all in the end. And so we're just going to work our way through these arguments this morning. Let's start in verse uh, 5 and 6. The author's first argument is Jesus is better than the angels because he is God's son. It says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, these two quotations, as I said, are lifted straight out of the pages of the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And they emphasize something that is true about Jesus, but not true about angels. And that is that only Jesus is God's son. Now, just to be clear on this, there are times when angels are referred to in the Bible as the sons of God, but this is always used in a general collective sense. It's sons with an O, lowercase s. 
This would be like a Boy Scout leader who says, good job, son, to one of the children in the troop who's just caught a fish. Uh, The angels are, however, never referred to with the unique title of the capital S, Son of God. Only Jesus is God's Son in this sense. Now, there's never been a time when Jesus did not exist as the Son of God. Uh, This has been his identity as the second person of the Trinity for all of eternity. And yet these two quotes were spoken in a different context. Not about that, but about a future son of an Old Testament king whose name was David. David was the greatest king in the Old Testament. And you see, God uh, promised David that one of his descendants, one of David's sons, would be given an everlasting throne by which he would rule over an everlasting kingdom. But there's a problem with that. The problem was that that's impossible. How could a mere person rule forever? Men can't do that. And so to answer the question of this impossibility, the Bible, and and here the the author of Hebrews, takes these quotes that were given to David, which David probably thought were pertaining to his son Solomon, and he applies those quotes to Jesus instead. And this makes perfect sense. Only Jesus, as the Son of God, could fulfill these impossible promises. And the Bible tells us that that is exactly what he did. The Son of God was born into this world as the one through whom these promises that were made to David would come true. So that now, not only is Jesus the Son of God who has existed for all eternity, but he's also this unique Son of David who would be given an everlasting throne by which he would rule in an everlasting kingdom. Now, I know that that's a a little bit confusing, but the main point of this is that no angel, not a single one, could ever make these claims. Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, but he's also the Son of David, and the author says, which one of the angels could ever put that on their resume? When I was a little kid, uh, maybe four years old or, or five or so, I was out once uh, one evening on a summer night flying a kite in the backyard with my dad, really enjoying my time, when uh, the little boy next door, whose name was Steve, who was about my age, came over and joined us. My dad offered to let him fly the kite too, which I was not very happy about. <laughs> and then I got really jealous because I thought, and I still think this happened, that Steve snuck an extra turn with the kite that should have been mine. And I was very upset, but Steve said that it wasn't true. And my dad agreed with Steve and defended Steve instead of me. And so I called Steve a name, and I remember running into the house, just devastated, crying. And and I sat down on the couch, and my dad asked me what the problem was. and, And I told him that I thought that he liked Steve better. And I remember my dad telling me something like, you know, Steve's a good kid. And it's great to have him as a neighbor. But you are my son. And I remember when he told me that, I I stopped crying. And I felt great again. And then I felt really bad again because he told me I had to go over and apologize to Steve. (laughs) What I realized there was that I had something special 
that Steve would never have. In fact, I had something special that no one else would ever have. And that's what the author is getting at here. He's saying Jesus is better than angels because he is God's own son. He's unique. He's special. And then he goes on to say something else. Number two, Jesus is better because the angels worship him, not the other way around. Look at verses six and seven. It says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, some of you, I'm just imagining, are probably struggling a little bit to care about this topic, right? You can be honest about that. I'm guessing that most of you do not struggle with the worship of angels. Is that true? Probably. But, What I want to suggest to you this morning is that if you were to actually see an angel, that might change in an instant. If an angel were to appear right now on the stage, and if you're like anybody else in the the Bible who has ever encountered an angel, you would be terrified. You would freak out. You would freeze up. You would want to call 911, but you wouldn't be able to do it because your fingers wouldn't work. You would fall to the ground, spilling your coffee all over the carpet, and just hope that you did not die. The two most common responses to seeing an angel in the Bible are fear and worship. And in fact, even the Apostle John, at the end of his life, in Revelation chapter 22, right? End of the Bible. You'd think he would have learned this by now. He sees an angel, and what he does is he falls down at its feet, and he begins to worship it. And the angel says to him, you must not do that. I picture the angel also flicking John in the head and saying, duh, you know? Now, why is it that people respond like this? Well, the reason is that angels are spectacular. And this quotation in Hebrews touches on that, and it tells us two things that are true about angels, that they are like winds and like flames of fire. Wind carries with it the idea of swiftness. They accomplish their work with great speed. And not only are they fast, but they are diligent. They don't dilly-dally around. When God tells them to do something, they make sure that it gets done. And flame carries with it the idea of power. Angels are fierce and strong. Uh, They are so much more than kind of pretty fairy creatures that live in the clouds that are available to us for emotional support. Although, verse 14 does tell us that they minister to the children of God. That somehow they protect us and encourage us in, in ways that often we're not even aware of. But angels are the warriors of heaven. They are fearsome and awesome creatures. And that is why whenever a person encounters one in the Bible, the first thing that the angel always has to say is, calm down, don't be afraid, don't freak out. It's okay. It's because everyone was freaking out and nobody thought it was going to be okay. There was a a TV miniseries uh, on the Bible that came out a few years ago. And in it, there's a scene that is supposed to take place in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the scene, there's some people who decide to attack a couple of angels. And Devin, our youth pastor, and I always laughed about this because the two angels fight back using karate. 
You know, it's, it's like all of a sudden it stops being about the Old Testament and, and you're watching a Jackie Chan movie. You know, it's, it, it's, it's very strange. And I've got to tell you, I have read the Bible cover to cover and I can assure you that there are no examples, not even one in this text of an angel ever using Kung Fu. And the reason is that they don't need to. Angels have far higher capabilities. I mean, in the Bible, we have examples of a single angel destroying an entire army by the sheer power of its might. The capacity that God has given to just one angel is almost unfathomable to us. And yet, in the heavenly realms, we are told that these angels exist in vast multitudes. And these armies of heaven, these winds and these flames, what do they spend so much of their time doing? Worshiping the Son and obeying him. Angels are so great and mighty that even John, of all people, John, when he saw one, he falls down and begins to worship it. And yet the angels themselves recognize their profound humility before their creator. And the point here is if the angels, if the angels worship Jesus, shouldn't everyone else do the same thing? Doesn't that just make sense? Jesus must be better than the angels because he doesn't worship the angels. The angels worship him. And then he goes another step. He says Jesus is better not only because of those two things, but he's also better because Jesus, unlike the angels, is in charge of everything. Look at verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I remember once when I was in middle school, my parents uh, had a babysitter planned for us, and the babysitter had to cancel, but they wanted to go out. And so they asked me how I would feel about being left in charge of my two younger sisters for the first time. And, and I remember saying, sure, I think I can do that, and, and I'll take great care of them, Mom and Dad. You don't need to worry uh, about a thing. And, and so they left. But to quote the Lord of the Rings... The hearts of men are easily corrupted, and power has a will of its own. And as soon as my parents left, I told my sisters that since I was in charge, they had to salute me and kiss my feet. (laughs) And they actually did do that, and I became the one brother to rule them all. And I paid for it really dearly when my parents got home. My my sisters told them that I was a terrible tyrant who... uh, It was like I sat on my throne, but that did not last very long. You know, in this world, there will be many false and lesser kings who will claim a variety of different thrones in our lives. But there is only one king who will rule forever and ever. And that's what the psalm that this quotation is taken from is about. It's a a wedding song, and 
psalm. And it too celebrates this Davidic king, this unique son of David, who will rule over an everlasting kingdom on his everlasting throne. And what this psalm does is it praises this king who will never ever be removed, never be asked to step down, never be discharged from his throne for any reason. He is a worthy king who rules his kingdom with a scepter, which is a a staff that symbolizes his sovereignty and his supremacy over everything. And the passage tells us that it's not a scepter of oppressiveness, or of greed, or of self-interest, which is true for so many other rulers of earthly kingdoms, he says, but it is a scepter of uprightness. That he will rule perfectly. He will abhor wickedness and love righteousness and justice and truth. And as a result of this, what the psalm pictures is God anointing this king with oil to represent his gladness and his joy. And God raises him up in a way that he can never fall. You know, Jesus Christ is presented in the Bible, not just as the king that we have, Although it does say that. It says he's the king, whether we like it or not. He's the king that we have. And it doesn't at all recognize him as the king that we deserve. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the king that we need. He is the king, in fact, whether we realize it or not, that we want. He's the king that we long for. He is the upright king who is incorruptible and who rules in righteousness. And someday the Bible promises, and I hope you believe this with all your heart, that when his kingdom is experienced fully by his children, none of us will be disappointed at all. And the point here, again, is that it is the position of the angels to stand before God's throne and to worship him. It is not their place to sit upon it. The angels understand who's in charge. And the writer says, so should we. Jesus is better because he is in charge of everything. Next, verses 8, excuse me, verses 10, 11, and 12 I love this part. And, the author says, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, again, this quote is taken from another psalm, Psalm 102, and the quote itself seems to have three ideas to it. First of all, it proclaims Christ as the creator of all the universe, as the power that is behind everything that exists, from the single star in our solar system that rises to greet us every morning with its heat and light, the sun, to the 400 billion stars that are teeming throughout our galaxy, the Milky Way, to the at least two trillion galaxies that are thought to exist, each one themselves containing billions and billions of stars. The the Bible says the heavens are the work of his hands. 
and the foundations of the earth, it says those are two from the 391,000 species of plant life on our planet to the 8.7 million species of animals to simpler things like dirt and rock and sand and water and mountains and caverns, all his handiwork, sight and touch and language and literature, art and science and math and photography and music. The Son of God is the craftsman, this says, of the son of every of the sum of everything. If you add it all up, it's his. It's all from him. Then the next part goes in a kind of surprising direction. Next, the psalm tells us that one day all of this will come to an end. That the universe is going to run its course one day and it will be as worn out as an old pair of jeans. The universe has a glory, but it is a fading glory. It is a magnificence, this says, that will only last for a time. And this is true not only of stars and of planets, but it's true of you and I as well. You and I are fading too. We're a part of this as much as anything else. I was really moved uh, by an article that I read this week in in Christianity Today uh, magazine. It's an article, the cover article is about children with disabilities. And um, the article, the... the, um, editor of the magazine wrote kind of an introduction to this, and, and it begins like this. He writes, for most of us, life is largely a long process of becoming increasingly unable. For those born without any discernible physical or intellectual disabilities, and even for many who are, life begins as a thrilling process of increasing ability. We learn to crawl and walk, to lift weights and climb stairs, to bike and run marathons. We are at our physical and mental prime from our late teens to our early 20s. Such ability is a wonder that we glory in, perhaps most vividly portrayed in Michelangelo's David, the prototype for the male human being at the pinnacle of his glory. But from that point on, we slowly and surely become increasingly unable We're not as quick as we used to be in the gym and on the field. Childbearing takes something out of us that never comes back. Concentrating on difficult reading takes extra effort. A knee goes out. It's harder to get down to play with the kids and even harder to get back up. Whether gradually or quickly, we move to that state where our entire being, from head to foot, is disabled. We die. This may be heartbreaking, but it is not a tragedy. Then he quotes from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We, 2 Corinthians says, we, this passage in Hebrew says that quotes this psalm, Like all created things, the Bible says, are wasting away. But what is true for us and everything around us, this passage says, is not true for Jesus. And this psalm announces that there is not a single molecule of Jesus that is wasting away. 
that he cannot and will not ever weaken or fade, dim or decline, shift or diminish, because he has a quality about him that is eternally unchanging and lasting and permanent. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the same yesterday and today and forever. And what's amazing to consider is that he has been around for all of eternity, and yet he is brand new, absolutely brand new. And he will forever be so unlike us, always brand new. And you know, when Christians face disappointments in life, when we struggle, when we feel defeated, when we have experiences that that make us feel like we are just wasting away. Sometimes it's our bodies literally themselves are, are wearing out like an old garment. It is that fresh power of Christ's permanent, his unchanging character, the fact that he never gets tired or weary or or sick or de-energized, the fact that he is always 100% that enables us to be renewed from within. That newness of life, that refreshment, that restoration that Christ himself exists in constantly and permanently. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says, sometimes he streams that into our hearts so that we experience it from within. And even though we're beaten down, we're not defeated. Even though it makes no sense for us to feel this way, we feel good, we feel alive, we feel loved by God, we feel like we have enough, even though when we look in the mirror, we can't believe that it's true. Jesus' power is the power behind that power. This psalm celebrates his eternal permanence, even though every single thing in the universe, like a gallon of milk, including you and I, has an expiration date attached to it. This says when it all expires, when Jesus rolls everything up like a robe that somebody might pack in a suitcase, it says he and he alone will still be the same, as new and as fresh and as alive as ever. Only Jesus is eternal, which brings us to our final quotation. Jesus is better this psalm says, because in the end, he wins. Verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. His his point here, the the last one, is that the, the final victory belongs certainly to Jesus. It says that even now, Jesus enjoys the greatest possible seat of honor in all of the universe, the seat at the right hand of God the Father. There's no greater privilege or honor than that. And one day when all is said and done and creation has run its course, God's enemies, this, say, this says, will bow down before him and become like a footstool on which a person might rest their feet. In other words, they will become of no consequence whatsoever. Jesus is better because in the end, he will win and any competitor to him will be shown to be of no 
consequence. Now, those are the five evidences that this author gives to us. But you know what is something I think that is very interesting about this entire passage, this first chapter that we've just looked at this morning? It's a lot longer than it really needs to be. It it, it really is. I mean, my sermon probably could have been five minutes. This probably could have been a little bit shorter because what's interesting is we are given these five reasons that Jesus is better than the angels, right? We're, We're told it's because he's the son of God, because the angels worship him. It's not that the angels, wait, yeah, angels worship him. It's not that he worships the angels because he's in charge of everything. He holds that scepter of uprightness. He's eternal. He always has been. He always will be the same. And in the end, at some point, he wins. But you know what the truth is? We're given five reasons, but if you think about it, just one of them would be enough, right? If just one of these things is true, that's plenty. Any one of them should be sufficient for us to give all of our allegiance to him and to put our lives in his hands for all of eternity. You know, the the most important question of your life and of my life is to whom will you entrust your eternal destiny? When this world ends or your life ends, To whom will you entrust what comes next? Uh, Some, like the woman that I spoke of in the beginning, entrust theirs to the care of angels. Other people, like a man that I spoke to just this week, believe that their good works will be enough to get them through. And still others, they just hope for the best and they try not to think about it. They figure that they'll figure things out when they get there, even though the Bible assures them that at that point it will be too late. But Christians, we live or die by Jesus. We bet our lives that he really is what this passage says that he is by far greater than even the mightiest of all angels. We live or die by the truth that Jesus Christ is the creator of life itself, of every molecule in all the universe, including everyone that built me. That he is the son of God who was sent into this world as the unique son of David to carry the burdens of our sins on the cross to die for us, even though he doesn't have to. In fact, perhaps he has no reason to in order to bring us eternal life. That he's the only one who could win our souls back to joyful, happy, satisfying relationship with God. Christians have staked everything on the words of the Apostle Peter who once said, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved. It is Jesus alone. There is no one else. If you're looking for someone or something else by which you might be saved, don't look internally into yourself. Don't look to your own good works. It's not enough. Don't look to an angel. They may be great. They may be terrifying. They may be the armies of heaven. Don't look to an angel. 
Don't look that, that somehow it'll all work out in the end because everything else has worked out pretty good in your end. And, and when you die, hopefully it will too. Peter says something the Bible communicates on every page. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven among which men might be saved. And Christians believe that not only will Jesus do that for us, we believe that ultimately he will be victorious. And that his victory, because of what he's done for us, will be our victory. So let me ask you this morning, have you entrusted your soul to this Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we admit to you today that we are doubters. It's hard for us to accept truth, things that we can't see with our eyes, things that we can't always feel with our hands. And yet we thank you for this universe, which shows us of the glory of Christ, that shows us physically and tangibly how wonderful and great and good he is. Father, we pray today that you would help us to trust these words written in this passage for our good, that not only is Christ our creator, but he is the one who is above all things, above every power and kingdom, there he stands. We thank you that even though Christ is so great and high and mighty and exalted, that he also made himself low, that he took on human flesh. He died uh, even a death on the cross, Philippians said, so that we might be rescued and saved from our sin. Father, we pray that you would give us today the faith to believe these things. We pray that you would give us confidence in these things that would bring us hope and strength, even as, like everything else, we find ourselves wasting away. We thank you that you offer to renew us from within and that that renewal is not found anywhere else than in relationship with you. We know that what we long for most, peace in life, rest in life, a sense that what we have is enough, you hold the key to that. You hold the key to our hearts. We praise you and thank you that it is your desire to unlock them and that you sent Jesus to make that possible. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for that one that you used to write this so many years ago and for how it speaks to us today. May we apply it and rest in it. In Jesus' name, amen.